Hey, good evening, church. Welcome to the table. My name is Matt Moberg. I'm one of the pastors here, and it sucks that you can't be here. Well, not in my garage. It's kind of a throwback episode of the table. I haven't done something in the garage, but I hate that we can't still be, you know, physically together, especially with the rain outside tonight. Good news, as Dr. Pitt just referred to, though, is that that day is a coming. And so uh, keep your chin up. We're almost there. Let's hold tight. Let's continue to love neighbors. Let's get vaccinated. Let's do what needs to be done so that we can go from being individual persons to a communal people once again. So we can remind ourselves why we're in this thing all together. That's, that's, that's our aim. Um, hey, listen, I'm going to do that tonight. That's what this space is for here is uh, we take our stories and we reroute them in the scriptural stories in hopes that we find edification, empowerment, and something good enough that we might be able to embody in our actual lives. I think we have a good story to look at tonight. For those of you who are unfamiliar, we are uh, led by the lectionary, which brings us into a rhythm of different scriptures that we go through at the Big C Church or a lot of other churches. And tonight we're led to Acts 8. The reason why I say this is a good one tonight is because I think, well, for me at least, in the midst of how laborious and frustrating and thin church feels right now it, it just like in the midst of how much of that is how it feels in life in general right now there's this story in acts that um we're gonna read right now that actually feels like good news like that healthy reminder of like oh yeah that's that's why we're doing what it is that we're doing um and so i'm excited to to uh bring you into it tonight also, I just need to note it. Um, I don't know how you and yours are intending to celebrate this fine day, but from my family to yours, we want to wish you just the happiest of hours as you go about your festivities celebrating the Feast of St. Philip, because that is what today is. Actually, I think it might be May 3rd, but it's the closest Sunday so we celebrated today. It is the Feast of St. Philip. How are you letting your hair down? Put it in the chat below. Are you, um, you know, taking care of local lepers and widows? Are you... Um, watching Dr. Philip. What are you doing to celebrate the Feast of St. Philip? We have these days in the church calendar where we take some space and we make some time to honor different people from church history, people whose faith has formed our faith, people whose hands have been all over our story, leading us to where we are today. We have these different moments where we pause to celebrate and remind our people to feast. Now, obviously, it, it, I think it goes without saying, but there are also times when the church calls her people to fast. But in the Christian story, by and large, there are always more feasts than fasts. There is more celebration than suffering. There is more reason to put your chin up than the reasons is to drop your head down. We do more feasts than we do fasts because at its core, Christianity is a celebration of what God has done, what God is doing, and what we trust that God still will do. And in congruence with that good news, we feast more than we fast. And today, for the 10th time, I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to give you a glimpse at some of that good news. Before we do that, just let me introduce you once again to one of the first followers of Jesus, St. Philip. For those of you unfamiliar with Philip, Philip is, is uh, a man who was, again, one of the first followers of Jesus, but he was born and raised in a small Jewish village called Bethsaida, which was on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, in a part of the region that was called, at that time, the Orthodox Triangle. Now, what does that mean, Matt? Well, thank you for asking. It's a name that was given to this space because of how religiously devout they were. 
in the Orthodox triangle, in this particular part of the area, um, everyone was very strict, ultra conservative religious people. You knew who you were and who you weren't, you know, who was with you and who wasn't with you. You knew what you could do and what you couldn't do, what you could wear, what you couldn't wear, what you could eat, what you couldn't eat, what you could say, what you couldn't say. Everything was broken down into like minute details, defining like what it means to be religiously devoted at this time in that triangle. Philip was born and raised in the Orthodox triangle. Everything was by the book for him. That's how we understood God. That's how we understood neighbors. Philip was a part of this small world of very committed Jewish worshipers of God, doing everything that they could to be good for their religion, regardless of whether or not the religion was good for them. And that is a dangerous place to be. I mean, if I was going to be a cynic about it, I'll be a cynic about it. Religion has always, since its first inception thousands and thousands of years ago, religion has always run on imaginary boundary lines with pointed fingers attached, constantly convincing others that they are sick in that the church is the only carriers of the vaccine. And so we don't say it very often, but separation is the top product that we push. I know that we don't say that very often. I know that we would probably say, actually, Jesus, Matt, is the top product that we push. I get that you are saying that, but by and large, religious history would show that religious people go to the world and they tell them that they are sick because they are separated from God. And then when those people start sweating bullets and go like, well, how do I close the gap? Well, they go, well, thank you for asking because I actually have just the cure for you. Come join our club, become a member, do what you need to do, and we will fix the gap. And I get why we do it, right? It's an effective strategy to employ. It's fear, it's manipulative, it's kind of gross, but it's effective. The question I guess I would ask is, is it honest? Is it integrous? See, one of the questions that scares church folk to consider is, what if all the time and money and energy that we spend offering the world a cure is for an illness that doesn't actually exist? What if people aren't separated from God? What if the good news that you never needed is that you can be reunited with God, but the great news that you never heard is that you were never separated in the first place? What would that mean for your life? How would that change your interaction with yourself, with others, and with the divine? See, if we got a glimpse at that, if we actually lived into that, we would understand why our faith is a faith that focuses more on feast than it does on fast. And you'll get a firsthand encounter of that in this text. Philip, born and raised in the Orthodox Triangle, he is out one day minding his own business in Samaria, when out of nowhere he has an encounter with God, a representation of God, an angel of God. And that representation points him to a different place that he needs to be. The text reads like this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is about like 50 miles. And the desert road that's being um, pointed to here is not an actual like 35W South. It's, it's an obscure place. It's the back roads. It's the winding and the turning throughout the woods type of narrative that, that the angel is sending him out. Philip, though, he, he goes. He starts out. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all of the treasury. Why did I say it like that? All of the treasury of the Kandaki, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. Consider this. Phil is out 
minding his own business. He is perhaps getting groceries or changing diapers or grinding away to put some food on the table. He is somebody that was raised up by the letter of the law. This is what you do and this is what you don't do. Everything has clarity. Everything has conviction. This angel then hijacks his day and says, go to this place and I'm not telling you why. Go to that destination and you have no duties beyond getting there. Phil has no idea who or what awaits him on this desert row. He's just got this funny feeling like he needs to be there, and so he goes. And then when Phil gets there, he runs into an Ethiopian eunuch, which I wish I could give you a name, but Luke doesn't tell us it. He does tell us other things, though, about him. In the totality of the Pericope, Luke tells us this man's position, his proximity to power, and that he is a eunuch, not once, but four different times. But he says nothing else about this man on the road. But there are some things that still should be said. It's important to name, for example, the fact that he is from Ethiopia and that he served as the treasurer for Kandiki, who is the queen of the Ethiopians in a land called Moro Nubio, which is this black African queendom that was sandwiched between two places called Aswan and Khartoum. That's important to know. It's also important to name that he has a scroll in his hands that he is reading from, which is something that um, not a lot of people had. In fact, many synagogues at this time couldn't afford to scrap a few different pieces of Torah together, but here is this Ethiopian eunuch with a scroll of Isaiah that sprawled out in his lap. He has access to wealth, he has access to resources, he's able to get his hands on his scroll. That's not a small detail, pay attention to that. It's also important to name that when he is reading that scroll that's scrawled out on his lap, he is doing so by himself, and nobody should read the Bible by themselves. The Bible is supposed to be this thing that is performed as a community. It's not supposed to be read in isolation. But this black eunuch from Ethiopia is in a chariot by himself, holding open the scripture, and he is reading it all alone. And that should break your heart. For the first audience of Luke's, that would have been a heartbreaking thing. They couldn't have imagined somebody just reading a scripture by themselves. Nobody opts into that. They are put into that position. Nobody wants that for themselves. They are forced into it. And so it would have broken Luke's first audience's heart to hear that he was reading the scripture alone. But there wouldn't have been any mystery as to why he was. After all, Luke tells us four different times that he was a eunuch. A eunuch is somebody who is neither fully male nor fully female in the eyes of society. They are lacking sexual reproductive organs, and in all likelihood, that predicament wasn't something that he was born into, but instead something that he was made into. The details are lost in this man's particular story, but we do have enough accounts of other ancient eunuchs and their origins that um, we kind of have a grasp on probably how it all went down, and it isn't good. It isn't pretty. In all likelihood, when this man was a child, as was the case for many children at this time, there were people in power who hurt him for the purpose of helping other people. He was mutilated, customized, so that he could better serve in the position that the powerful had picked him for, which in this case was the Secretary of the Treasury for the Queen Kandiki. Don't miss that, please. Don't miss that this man, who was once a boy, was taken and customized for the purposes of service in a specific way and is no longer considered a man by that society. They turned him into a tool, a slave. He was built to be taken advantage of, even sexually, but was never able to experience any pleasure for himself. 
he was a body for use. He was never fully human. He could never own land. He could never have a voice in politics. There were things that came with manhood and growing older, and manhood was given only to those who were of age A, but then who were also capable of reproducing children later on. And so no matter how old this man would have grown, he would never have been granted his credentials as a man because of what somebody took from him when he was only just a boy. And it would just be remiss of me not to say that this form of slavery, what happened to him, this, this, this form of slavery that was modeled in Roman provinces at this time, that is the model that American slavery was built off of. In fact, to even get more pointed, this is why white men throughout history have referred to black men as boy. This is where that comes from. Because even at the founding of our country, when only men could vote, a black man was never considered a man, even if they were in their 70s. It was always boy. Because if you called him a man, he could own some land. If you called him a man, he could have a vote. If you called him a man, he could have a voice. As long as white men can call black men boys, equality remained elusive. This is why at a Timberwolves game last year, I was there with a young black mother and her young black son, and we were in the middle of a conversation when an old white man in front of us started yelling at Andrew Wiggins down the court and said, do better boy. And the, the black mom I was speaking to left our conversation and immediately corrected that man. It is offensive to call black men boys. It is traumatizing to call black men boys. It is offensive because it is oppressive. It is not a benign term because it has been used in oppressive ways to deny black people their humanity. As one black friend of mine recently told me, that word boy, it leaves you feeling like to survive, you have to be extra selective with where you step, lest you are going to be stepped on in your recklessness. And I think about that when I read this story because I don't see that heightened sense of intentional selectivity on behalf of the eunuch. Luke says that this man, this black eunuch from Ethiopia, this man had gone to Jerusalem for worship. And for the life of me, I read that and I go, like, why would you do something like that? Why would you go there? Why would you, do, why, would you, why would you step into that space where you know you're going to be stepped on? I mean, anybody who was a practicing Jew at the time would have known how the system works in accordance with Deuteronomy 23 that clearly forbids eunuchs from participating in the assembly of God. As a victim of castration and abuse, the moment that the eunuch would have stepped onto the scene, he would have been put in a position of extreme irrevocable dishonor and impurity in the eyes of the conservative religious establishment in Jerusalem at this time. You can't have kids, you can't come in. If you are incapable of being circumcised, then then you are incapable of being deemed as worthy because you cannot carry out the covenant. So I guess my question is, if I was sitting here in my garage with the Ethiopian eunuch by my side, is why would you ever step into a scene like that? And I think Luke gives us the answer. I think implicit inside of the text of Acts 8, Luke is telling us that the eunuch steps into a scene like that because the scroll stepped into his story first. 8.28, on his way home, the eunuch was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Luke even makes sure to note the particular part of Isaiah's text that the eunuch is reading from. Isaiah 53, 7-8, this is the passage that the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Pay attention, church. In this passage, in Isaiah's prophetic words, Isaiah captures the image of a body that is in disgrace, 
and is in pain. Isaiah is describing somebody who is not allowed to move freely, who has no say in their particular destination, who is being led like a lamb to their own deaths and can do nothing about it. Isaiah speaks of one who does no speaking of their own, who is owned by somebody else, so he keeps silent like property because he's not seen as a person. Isaiah writes about a body that has been given no justice, somebody whose flesh was cut and abused for the sole benefit of somebody else. Somebody who has no descendants and who will never have descendants, will never be able to reproduce and have children. Somebody whose life would eventually be taken up. And so here's my question. Inside of this scroll that the eunuch holds, what do you think he hears? Because I know what many of us hear in that. I know for many Christians, especially those of privilege, we read this text and say that Isaiah is talking about the Messiah. But for the Ethiopian eunuch, he's got to be wondering, is Isaiah talking about me? And if Isaiah is, and if Isaiah is important, then are the people who hold this story the kind of people who will give me honor when all I've known is horror? Will they give me belonging when all I've experienced is brutality? Will they give me some kind of dignity when all I've known is dismissals? And all of a sudden, the 2,000 years between the text there and us here doesn't seem so far away. Because many of you have walked into rooms where you didn't know if there would be welcoming arms on the other side of the door. Many of you have been so cold in winters of loneliness that you didn't know if you'd ever find warmth again. Many of you have been wounded and yet you kept on walking because you trusted that the hands that did you harm, that those hands are now behind you and that healing hands are up ahead. And so you went to go look for those hands only to find more harm instead of help. And it almost destroyed you. I know your stories. I, I know that that's been the case for many of you. And I think that was the case for the eunuch. I don't think he was careless when he went to Jerusalem to worship. I think he read Isaiah's words and was compelled. And so I think this trip back home when he's reading this scroll, he's reading it through swollen eyes and a creased brow and bald fist, wondering where did I get it wrong? I could have sworn that somebody like me was finally gonna belong with the people like that. And yet here I am reading the scripture alone, even though I know that nobody should read the scripture alone. How many of you have made a lonely trip home from church like that? Man, I think a lot about just in different conversations the past week, many trans friends of mine who have had that experience where they went to a church where there were the big banners outside that said, all are welcomed only to step inside and find that not all are actually wanted. Painful trip back home from Jerusalem to Gaza, reading scripture by yourself, wondering if anybody else will ever choose your chariot to come on inside of. I mean, in so many different areas, we have made the church into such a country club that it's just amazing that they haven't taken away our tax-exempt status. So many different times we have made insiders and outsiders push people away who were so desperate to find a way in. See, this entire scene in Acts 8, don't miss how heartbreaking it is. You need to feel the white space in between the black words, the tone of the text, the tear-soaked pages that the eunuch holds in his lap. The entire scene is incredibly sad, and yet, I told you at the start that this is a story of celebration because the eunuch who is reading the text by himself, he won't be doing that much longer. God has chosen one of the first disciples of Jesus not to go preach to a nation, but to go find this one individual person who ran into a locked door at the house of God and was told they don't belong there. God is calling Philip to go say that is not true. They are liars. You are here. You are loved. You are enough. You are mine. You are a child. I know what they did to you. I hate what they did to you, but you are loved. You belong. You are good. 
You are seen. You are safe. Philip, go and tell the eunuch all of these things. And Philip goes. Philip is sent to this lonely road where he is kind of like this uh, creeper, essentially, who's jogging up next to the chariot as the eunuch is reading this text out loud. And he shouts, hey, do you know, do you know what you're, do you understand what you're hearing in there? Do you get it? And the eunuch says, actually, what I wish more of us would say, the eunuch says, how am I supposed to understand when nobody's here to lead me? I could read the words, but I don't understand the weight. And then Philip jumps in and he tells the story of Jesus. Philip talks about the one who suffers infidelity to love instead of succumbing to the promises of power. Philip tells the Ethiopian that Jesus is the Messiah. And the Ethiopian had to have heard that the exalted one is a eunuch, that the anointed one was the abused man, that the excluded one is being lifted up, that the brutalized is the beloved, and the eunuch starts connecting the dots on if if somebody like that that looks an awful lot like me is sitting on the throne over all that is then what what would stop me from getting baptized right now are you telling me philip if i'm hearing you correctly that there is nothing about who i am that would prohibit me from participating in all that god is and philip says nothing Oh my gosh, it's so good. I could cry right now. It's, just, it's a beautiful story. Philip tells him that throughout your whole life, when all of the churches and all of the clubs and all of the cliques and all of the parties, all of the people who have pushed you out, God has always been there to pull you in. And so I need to make an announcement right now. And I wish you could have done this in person, but I do want to say a couple words just to a few of you, not all of you. For those of you who you know, have it all together, you look good, you are good, you have no problems, never experienced like being disappointed, frustrated, or left out, or anything of that sort, you can go on to Facebook uh, elsewhere at this point and um, like other people's posts or do what you need to do. Do people still poke? Not the point. But I do want to make an announcement for those of you who dragged your feet to step into this space because you were scared of what would find you when you did. I want to make an announcement for those of you who felt like the presence of God is the last place that you should be because of who you woke up next to this morning or who you ran away from last night. I do have an announcement for the drunk, the parent, the queer, the addict, the scared, the skeptic, those who walk with a limp and it feels like everybody else is sprinting, the angry, the apathetic, the frustrated, the fed up. I have an announcement for you tonight. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And every time somebody tries to push you out, please know that God is there pulling you in. Please know that what they refuse, God receives. What they reject, God rejoices. Please know that you are not a stain on the community of God. You are a celebration. And to make that clear, God sends Philip 50 miles down a desert road because nobody should have to be alone. Nobody should get in the way of the one who is the way. I think it was Rachel Held Evans who once said that the gospel is offensive not because of who it cuts out, because of who it brings in. Yeah. Isaiah actually said the same thing first. You know, if, if the eunuch and Philip were to keep turning the pages of that text, they would get to the point where Isaiah dreams of a day where eunuchs and all people will be welcomed into the fold. Where there'll be a community of God that is actually for the people loving and leading the people in a way that is benevolent and edifying for all. I remember when I realized that my job as a pastor 
wasn't to invite people to the table. I realized that my job as a pastor was to do all that I can to stop blocking the invite that had already been given. I didn't need to do something special, I just needed to stop doing things that were awful. And when I think about queer people in particular, they didn't need my generosity. I'm the one who needed their forgiveness for getting in the way of the one who is the way, the one who is meeting the eunuch on the road and is meeting the people in Jerusalem, is calling us all to live together in love instead of these exclusionary ways of hate. You know, the other scripture for this week was um, from 1 John, where John identifies God not just as loving, but God as love. God is love. Think about the weight of what that means. God is love. It reminds me of this old poem by Edwin Markham, and I'll close with this. He drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win, and so we drew a circle, and we took him in. Y'all are loved. Please, let's see each other next week. Grace and peace, friends.